Uh, hi, my name's Paul Matthews, and you're listening to the Academy Developing Practice podcast. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the University of Liverpool's Academy's Developing Practice podcast. In this episode, myself, Matthew Davis, an organisational developer, and Alex Owen, an academic developer, sat down with Paul Matthews, founder and CEO of People Alchemy, to discuss his latest thinking around nudge theory and how that can be used in learning and development. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Paul. Uh, We're really pleased to be speaking with you today. And uh, I have no doubt that many of our listeners will have used your product, but they probably don't know who you are, especially if the listeners are from the University of Liverpool. Uh, So just for those people to begin with, Paul's company offers a product called the Personal Assistant, which we then renamed the Professional Development Toolkit. And this can be found on the Academy's website in the online resources section. Uh, But before we talk about toolkits or anything else, what we like to do, Paul, is just start off the podcast by getting a little bit around your background and how you got to where you are today. Uh, So, Paul, over to you. Oh, that's a long story. It's great to be here. Um, where did I come from? I, I was I was born and bred in New Zealand. I grew up on a farm, so it gives me a somewhat practical view of life, I guess. Uh, ended up being an engineer and then got into all sorts of other things. Um, and learning and development's been, uh, for the last 20 plus years, has been my area. I've written three books in that field and speak at conferences around the world. Um, on on learning and development, development in leadership and management and all of those different areas. So um, it's all, it's it's fun. I love it. Brilliant. Right. Okay. So how did you get to where you are now? Because you're based in Milton Keynes, is that right? And you own your own company. So what was the transition then from being on the farm in New Zealand to getting into, into the UK? Uh, I, I think the, 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 the shift into L&D came uh, because I was working at, at director level in a, in a global multinational, the whole lot. Um, and I was a, a customer of learning and development in that I sent people who were in my division away for training. Um, and uh, for a variety of reasons, I left that company um, and uh, got involved uh, helping uh, a com- another company do some management training. And they said, well, why do you, you, you're good at this. Why don't you keep doing it? So that was kind of how uh, I right. almost got my accident into L&D. And then what I discovered was that it didn't actually work that well in most cases. In other words, people would go to a training course. Remember, this is 20 plus years ago. Yeah. Um, and and they go back to their, their desk, back to their work, and, and not a lot will have changed. So uh, as an engineer, that bothered me because if I was an engineer in building machinery or, or something with that level of failure rate, I'd be killing people. You know, I, it was that simple. Yeah. So I said, there's got, you know, there's something wrong here. There's got to be a better way. So I've kind of approached LFB as an engineer rather than as someone with a long background in learning and development. And that, that gives right. me a different take on it. And, and I think the, the, the farm kind of practical, uh, you know, if it works, that's great. I don't really care why. Let's just use it because it works sort of approach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think it is, um, Paul, that people, you say they come to learning and teaching development um, sessions, but then they get back to their desk and it kind of all goes out the window. Why do you think that is? 
Uh, well, that's the whole um, conundrum of learning transfer. And I, my third book was on learning transfer. That's been out about a year and a half now. Um, and really, it's about if you are going to present people with content, give them exercises, do stuff in a training room or in an e-learning course, mm. what do you then have to wrap around that to make sure they operationalize it effectively in the workflow? Because the issue is that people don't. They go back to their desk. Um, and in kind of the, the best scenario is that the manager says, right, let's sit down and figure out how you can use your new skills and knowledge. Sure. Worst scenario is the manager says, oh, God, thank God you're back. Listen, I went on that course a couple of years ago. It didn't, didn't help me, so you can forget about it now. Let's, let's get back to the real stuff. Um, and, and so you've, you've got this whole idea of how do you then um, get people doing things after a training course in order to change their behavior. Because, of course, if they're not going to do anything different, the behavior won't change. So it's all about getting people doing things. And that's probably where we segue into this whole concept of nudging people. Mm. Because what you're doing is you're saying to people, um, in order, we want to give you a choice to do some things after the training course. And we'd really rather you did them. I mean, you can choose yeah. not to, but we prefer you did. So how can we nudge you in, in, in ways that are ethical to get you doing those things so nudging fits within that whole learning transfer thing, but it also fits in all sorts of other parts of our lives. It's, it's not just there. Yeah, so we're, we're talking today about nudge theory, and um, Matt would know a lot more about this than me, but I have heard of the term nudge theory. Can you just summarize it for us as to what, what it is that that theory is about? Well, a nudge, I mean, it's a prod, it's a poke, it's some other, some way to, as I said, nudge or direct people in a certain direction when you're offering them a choice. Um, and if you work on Thaler's definition, he's the guy that didn't come up with the idea, but has kind of popularized it. And he says a nudge for it to be thought of as truly a nudge is the cost of not complying with the nudge is low. In other words, people can choose not to do what you're nudging them to do if they choose not to do it. And the cost of not doing it um, is, is not great um, in terms of ignoring the nudge. Um, so you might, for example, put food, healthy food at the front of a shelf mm -hmm. um, in, a, in, a, in a cafeteria in a school or something. But if you, um, uh, and if you, if you put the, the unhealthy food behind it, then you're nudging them to take the stuff at the front. If you just yeah. took the unhealthy food off the shelf altogether um, or put it away on the other side of the room, then it costs a lot more to ignore the nudge. And so it's then no longer kind of a nudge in the traditional um, way of looking at what a nudge is. So it's all about what can we do to affect the content of the choice that we're offering someone or the context that surrounds that choice when we offer it in order to try and get them to make a choice that is in someone's best interests. Um, and that obviously brings in the question in whose best interests mm. um, because <laughs> yes, and that's where the ethical side comes in, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, so for example, let's, let's use that school example. Um, it's, it's a really nice one. If you, if you um, were running a cafeteria at a school, you've got some choices on how you arrange the food on the, in the checkout queue in order for the kids to pick up their meals. Um, now you can put the apples at the front or the donuts at the front. You know, so how you arrange that food will have an impact on what people select and put on their tray. 
So here's the, here's the, here's the thing. Do you select it to make sure the kids get the healthiest meal? Do you select it to make sure that the, uh, the food types that give you the biggest profit margin are at the front? In other words, you're running a profit, you know, a, a business as a cafeteria. Do you try and maximize your profits with no regard to the health of the kids? Do you randomize the way the food is arranged to try and not have an impact? But of course, that will automatically then have an impact. So you cannot not uh, change the choice when you're offering it, which means you're effectively, you're a choice architect. You're an sure. architect when you're designing that choice and the way you architect a choice will always have an impact on the people doing the choosing. The question is whether you do that architecture on purpose, whether you don't realize you're even a choice architect at all and it just kind of happens. Um, and then also what your ethics are around, uh, you know, making that choice architecture. And one of the phrases that's kicking around is benevolent paternalism. In other words, I want the best for the people making the choice, but not in a way that restricts them from making a bad choice if they're really insistent on doing that. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of really good examples, isn't the Paul of Nudge Theory um, at the moment? And, and there's some, obviously that classic example uh, of the um, toilets in the German airport. I don't think we'll talk about that one. But one of the ones that I really like um, is road signs and how some countries started to investigate Nudge Theory in, in, in relation to road safety. And they changed their road signs. So if somebody went past... Uh, an area which measured their speed a, and they were below the speed limit, a smiley face would appear. And if somebody went past the area uh, above the speed limit, a, a red frown would appear. Um, and that had a huge impact on people's behavior. People were almost, I suppose it's almost not only a nudge, but a little bit of gamification. So can I get a green smiley face um, from that sign as I go past so some of these examples are really, really good, and I really like them. They're, they're everywhere uh, these days. You see really good examples of them. But I suppose what I'm coming to is, is, is how do you believe uh, OD or learning development teams can leverage that, that theory in their development activities uh, for staff? And what benefits do you think will be achieved as a result? Um, well, as I said, one of the areas is learning transfer, fairly obviously, because um, you know learning and development and OD... Uh, delivering formal training or formal learning interventions, whether that's online or however, um, needs follow-up. Um, and of course, yeah. if you are uh, asking someone after a training course um, to do something, you're effectively offering them a choice because you're saying, please do this, but they've got the choice usually not to do it. Yeah. Um, so there's a choice of do or not do. And also there's a choice, even if you made it mandatory, then there's a choice to do it willingly or do it unwillingly. So almost whatever you do, you're offering choices. And, and you, you talk about L&D, you can bring that out to the whole panoply of human experience. We're always, well, we're very, very often offering choices to our fellow humans in one way or another. Um, and of course, what we've got to do is figure out, well, what's our outcome in this? what would be a useful outcome for the person that we're offering the choice to? Are those in tension or, or in conflict? If not, hopefully we can move in the same direction. In that case, how can I nudge someone? In other words, how can I design the choice 
or the context surrounding the choice in such a way that um, they will take that choice and they will move in the direction that is beneficial for both of us. In other words, you're looking for a win-win, ideally. I think just trying to apply that to academic development, which is the field that I work in, Paul, just I think that's what it comes down to is giving them the choice that that they want to choose. So when I run development sessions, um, I, I know a lot of the conversation I have with academics, rightly so, is, oh, this is a brilliant idea. But with, you know, my workload, with my research output, with student need, with academic administration, I just don't have the time to implement this positive choice but I guess so it, are you saying that it's about actually not selling it to people but presenting it to people in such a way that they even though they've got all these other things going on they can see the real benefits um, that they're nudged towards that decision uh, yes you're right and and what I would lean on there is the work of a chap called BJ Fogg uh, at Stanford University Fogg F-O-G-G um, he's done a huge amount of work on behavior change and yes. one of his models is, is a, a model where he talks about for a behavior to be initiated, three things need to be in place. Um, and those three things are, there needs to be a prompt, and you just mentioned that. How do we um, prompt them? How do we give them a call to action? How do we mm -hmm. ask them to do something? Um, and then there's, if you do ask someone to do something, there's two immediate things that happen in their mind very, very fast. So even if I was just to ask you, if we were together, you know, please grab me a glass of water. There's two things that will go through your mind. The first thing is, how difficult is that for me to do right now? Is it frustrating for me to do? In other words, is it awkward? Is it going to get in the way? Is it going to take too much time? Uh, can I even do it? Do I know how to do it? So I will make an assessment of my ability in the moment to do that task. And then hard on the heels of that, I will then measure my current motivation to do that task, given my assessment of its um, it's difficulty to me. In other words, I want to see a task that is easy enough for me to do and that right now my motivation is high enough to bother doing it. And then I'll respond to the prompt and the behavior will start. So basically what you can do when you're delivering a prompt, for example, is you can pump up either the motivation or you can reduce the perception of the difficulty of the task. Sure. So one of the things you talked about there is people say, yes, this is a great idea, but I haven't got time. Now, that, that's true in their mind at that point. So what you've got to do is saying is you've got to change one of those factors um, in that three-way thing. So you're going to have to give them the prompt anyway. So what you might well say is split that bigger task up into lots and lots of small ones. And then each of those cumulatively over time will build up to the big one. But each of them becomes quite doable in the moment. Oh, that'll take me a couple of minutes. Yeah, I can do that right now. Um, and so that's how you can start getting people and nudging them into actually responding to a prompt for a behavior. Um, is that yeah. perception of awkwardness or difficulty? Yeah. And also, and, the, and their motivation level. So, for example, motivation tends to wane over the course of a day or as people get tired. So if you present that prompt for a sizable task at the end of the day or, or in the afternoon, chances are they're going to say, oh, that's too much for me right now. I just can't be bothered. <laughs> and once they've done that once, the chances are they'll do it again tomorrow, even if you present the prompt differently, because they've already kind of 
framed that task as something they don't want to do in their head. So they've yeah. now got a memory of being presented that task. And then the chances of them doing it at a later date are much lower. Yeah. BJ Fogg talks about habit change, doesn't he? And trying to hook the things that you're trying to adapt and change onto things that you already do, which I guess is what you're saying in terms of maybe specifically for academics. If we're trying to nudge them into making new changes, it's, it's looking for what we already do, but, but hooking that new activity, that new um, behavior onto, onto what's already happening so that that motivation is still there. Uh, yes, his, his tiny habit stuff is kind of sits alongside the nudge stuff. Um, yeah. There are some overlaps and correlations, yes, indeed, but it's a whole, it's a different way of looking at stuff and, sure. and still an essential part of behavior change. Um, but it's not, it, it doesn't really quite fit into the nudge thing in quite the same way Thaler and Sunstein and people talk about it. Just building on that, um, in David Halpern's book, The Nudge Unit, which obviously he was part of the behavioral insights team that was worked with the, well, different governments now from, from the mid 90s. He talks about a nudge, and it's probably the same thing as Sun Sunstein and, and Thaler, actually. He talks about it in terms of using the acronym EAST. So to make EAST, E stands for easy, A stands for attractive, S stands for social, and T stands for timely. So if you can get all those things uh, together when you're when you're using a nudge, then it's much more likely to have an effect than maybe only two or three of them. Um, so an, an example of what they did in, in the behavioral insights team was to create, uh, was to edit, sorry, the, the letters that went out to people who were overdue on their tax bills. Um, so they would look at the data. And first off, they made it very easy for you, for you to pay your tax, which is fair enough. Um, they changed the language uh, on the tax. The very first line of the, of the letter, rather than stating how much they owed, they stated uh, X amount of people like you in your profession pay their bill on time so just using that as a way of saying oh this is you know other people in my area do this they pay their bill on time um, and then it goes into how you can pay um, and if you know if you if you pay as soon as possible then there's some bonuses and benefits there etc so they've used the east uh, acronym there to make it easy so uh, easy attractive social and timely uh, to increase tax revenues for the government so that, I really like that example because it didn't cost them much. They they trialed different words. Uh, they sent out, you know, they did um, proper blind testing. They sent out thousands of letters with one set of words, thousands of letters with another. And eventually they came through an iterative process to the best possible uh, wording on a letter, which gave the best possible results. So it did truly nudge people into, into paying their tax on time, which, you know, not a bad thing. <laughs> I guess that's somewhat what we're trying to do with this podcast, Matt, is obviously not get people to, we're not talking about tax, but we're, you know, we are just presenting to people some of the excellent practice that's going on across the sector to inspire people to, to nudge them to, to adopt some of that for themselves. Yeah, exactly. What's been happening over time is that there's been more and more research done. And so consequently, there's more and more biases that are being discovered about how we react to choice situations. Um, you mentioned one there when you talked about the social bias, when a lot of people are doing it, there's kind of a herd mentality bias where we start saying, well, if everybody else is doing it, it's probably a good thing to do, so I'll join the herd and I will do it. 
Um, now, there's a whole raft of those, dozens of them that have been discovered, some of them more powerful than others. Mm. Um, and they're available in the literature. So that actually starts to give you a set of kind of parameters that you can look at um, to say, well, given this situation, which of these biases might be relevant when someone's making a choice? Because people tend to not uh, behave totally rationally. And, and I say that slightly tongue in cheek. What I mean by that is when offered a choice, there's the Spock approach where you understand everything, you're a computer-like mind, emotion doesn't get involved, and you do the optimized thing given your knowledge at the time. But actually, very few of us approach our decisions in that Spock-like rational way. We tend to behave based on what uh, the psychologists call heuristics, which are rules of thumb or shortcuts that says, well, given a situation, this looks a bit like another one or whatever, or I've got more information about this. And, and a bias will kick in based on the heuristic that we're uh, using. And that will push us down a certain way into a certain choice. So what you can do is start designing your nudges to match these biases. Um, so that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to just experiment a bit like the tax thing is you can say, well, we're going to send out some different letters. We have no idea what wording might work better. We can make a guess at some of the wording that might work better because of the different biases that are out there. And then we just got to experiment. And what we've got to do is almost suspend um, the idea that people think rationally and just say, we'll just throw all sorts of examples out there and see what works and what doesn't. And just because we think here sitting out in our office that that set of words won't work doesn't mean they won't. And there's yeah. some startling um, occurrences where people have tried nudges that on the face of it make no sense at all. And yet they worked. But of course, if we sat there thinking, well, that nudge won't work, so we won't even test it. Then, of course, you would have missed the one that actually would have worked. <laughs> um, so so that's um, and then the other thing I get from people is they say, well, OK, um, I'm. I'm doing learning and development. I'm doing organization development. I'm a manager delegating to people. How can I apply a nudge? Where can I apply a nudge? And actually I say, that's the wrong question to ask because what that will end up with you doing is it's a bit like wandering around with a hammer looking for something to hit. Um, you know, you've got your tool, but you're not quite sure where to apply it. So the much better question is where am I offering a choice to someone in the moment that they're making that choice? And then given that choice point, how can I architect the choice in such a way that it will go the way that I would prefer it to go? In other words, when you ask the question, where am I offering a choice? You're actually exposing the nails that need hitting with your hammer. Ah, so right, it's, a, okay. it's a different approach. So that's the better question is, is, is where am I offering a choice to someone? That's really interesting. So I guess in terms of our field, in terms of uh, development, um, what if the choice was, say, for example, um, I've learned X, Y, Z in the classroom or online, and now my choice is whether to apply it in the workplace or not. There is a choice there because they might know best practice uh, has been given to them and they might understand that, but it might be easier to not follow best practice. What would be the example of the nudge, do you think? So that comes back to how can I reduce the little bits of activity or the whole activity, how can I reduce it to small pieces they can try piecemeal to get better at doing that new best practice? So mm. cut it up into little things 
And then, I mean, you mentioned that uh, the, the, the urinals in, it was at Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, where they put the... Oh, that was it, fly. Amsterdam. Yeah. Um, and they reduced spillage by over 80%. That's one of the kind of the poster childs. Um, and, and, and of course, that's about focusing attention. And that's often what many nudges are. So what you've got to do is after the training course, you have to focus attention on a small task that they can do that will increment them a little further to utilizing that new knowledge and skill. So it's small activities over time that will cumulatively get them into a new behavior pattern but you have to focus their attention on those small things. So in other words, you have to right. ask them to do it. And then you also have to make sure they're aware there's enough support around them that it will be easy for them to do. So that's that. Yeah. Yes, I can do it. And it's going to take a short time. So therefore I will do it because there's enough, you know, there was enough motivation put in place or enough information given to me that I understand this is a good thing to do. Um, otherwise you're going to get stuck in that knowing doing gap that we know a lot of stuff, but don't do it. Because yeah. we're trying to do often too much at once. So people kind of know, yes, I've got this diet. I know what I should be eating, but it's such a big thing to suddenly change my entire diet. So very often you can get there by changing small bits of it over a period of time and diarizing that and making sure that this week I'm going to make this small change. Next week I'm going to make that small change. And over time you'll find that those changes in diet will accumulate and eventually you'll be eating a much better diet. Um, mm. But with a lot, it'll take you longer, but it'll be a lot less stressful. Um, and there's a far higher chance of success, for example, doing it that way. Yeah. So Paul, we've talked a little bit about some of the drawbacks to adopting the nudge theory approach. Are there any more that we need to be aware of? Is there, is there a question around um, people reacting badly do you think to this form of kind of a psychological tactic do you think people might see through it um people do see through it and uh, but having said that it's such a um a part of our life now that it you know you 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 sign up for an antivirus subscription or a magazine online there'll be a recommended choice that's a nudge sure so it's it's such a part of our life when you invite your partner out to a movie you can say, let's go to a movie, or you can say, let's go to a movie because Tom Cruise is on, and I know you love his movies. So what you've done <laughs> sure. is you've, you've amped up the motivation as you're providing the prompt or the call to action. So, I mean, if you want to have a romantic evening, you light the candles and put the incense on, you do all the, the things in the hope of when the choice is presented later in the evening, it goes your way. Um, <laughs> so we all know about nudges, and we do it all the time, but we usually do it in a fairly unconscious haphazard way. Sure. So mm. what I'm saying here is that it's not that everybody, you cannot not nudge basically and mm. in, in however you offer a choice, there is a nudge implicit in that choice that you're, you're architecting for someone to do. So then the question really becomes is how do I architect the choices? And you can, you know, you can just let it flow as you do with, you know, talking with friends and, and, and say, let's go bowling or whatever. Um, or if it's in a work situation, you can get much more specific about it and say, right, here's a choice point. How do I want them to choose? How can I nudge them in the direction of that specific choice? And that's when you can start saying, well, here's some crazy off the wall ideas we can split test. And also, here's a list of different biases that might be relevant, whether that's the herd mentality one, um, whether it's an availability bias, there's dozens of them. 
as I said, we yeah. haven't got time to go into them here or indeed, you know, how they, how each one of them works. Um, but there is quite a bit of research around a lot of that. We've had a few good examples there, Paul, uh, of nudges being used um, in different areas of life. Um, I really, I really like the one about the light and the candles and things like that. That's really interesting thinking about that as a nudge. Do you have any great examples from the people that you've spoken with, uh, you've met over the years, of where it's been used specifically in learning and development, where somebody has, like you said, exposed that nail and then done something um, really interesting around that uh, to ensure successful development activity? Um, I think, uh, well, yes, the answer is yes. And, and, and what you'll find is that programs that work well in learning development tend to be full of nudges, even if people didn't purposefully think about nudging when they were developing the, you know, the program itself. Yeah. Um, and, and it's even things like, well, 80% of the people who run, who, who do this e-learning course find it helps them immensely in their day-to-day -day work. Even just a comment like that, as you're setting something up is you're applying that herd mentality one, for example, yeah, yeah. you know, um, but there's, there's also another, another bias that people use is the IKEA effect, it's sometimes called, which is if people get involved in building something, they then have a vested interest in making sure that mm. thing that has been built in part with their assistance is good and stays good. So in other words, get managers involved with developing the actual learning course itself to give them some input. And then they're much more likely when they get offered the choice whether to help the delegate or not after the course, They'll want to help the delegate because they want to make sure that their input into the building of that course was not wasted. Um, so, you know, there's some, there's some things like this. There's the old scarcity nudge. There's only three places left on this program and then it won't run again for two more months <laughs> and it's intensely valuable. Yeah. Um, so that's the scarcity nudge. So you can, you can start to see that, uh, another nudge is the frictionless one. You know, water tends to flow downhill by the easiest path. People will tend to flow downhill by the easiest path. So in other words, how can you make um, following the nudge the easiest of the different options? So you might actually make some options more difficult on purpose to try and get people away from those options. So there's, there's, there's ways yeah. you can do. So in other words, the option that you want, how did it appear in comparison to the others? I mean, a classic with this is someone who knows about this always puts a really expensive bottle of wine on the menu because then the other one that, that, that's got the biggest profit margin next down actually looks cheap by comparison. <laughs> so, so that's a nudge in, in a menu. You can do the same thing with learning and development where you can start actually positioning how much time or how difficult things are to do to guide people into the one that you want, making it seem the easiest choice and the logical one to make. Mm. Um, there's the whole social influences thing, you know, that, that, you know, you've heard of the employee of the month, John, they did this and that, and, and they reckoned that it was because they did this e-learning course or this training that it helped them become employee of the month. Um, so, so there's, there's, there's so many things like that, that you can do and right through to the prompts. So here's an example. Um, students were taken into a room to, to play a game on a table on a side table they had some props on that table. When the props on the side table, which was not referenced in the game and was irrelevant to the game, when those props were a computer and a, and a calculator, the students were much more competitive than when the props on the side table were kids' toys. 
So the way that you put the visual messaging around a choice will have an impact on how people participate in the choice. And it's not just visual, by the way. There was an experiment done in a cafeteria where they wafted a very, very gentle smell of cleaning products through the whole cafeteria. And they then discovered that when that was there, and if you ask the people in the cafeteria, is there, you know, is there a strange smell in here? They would probably say no. It was below that kind of subliminal thing. If they really smelled, they said, yeah, yeah, someone's been cleaning in here recently. But other than that, it was not detectable. Um, and they found that people in a hugely statistical um, uh, difference took their trays back to the server and cleaned their tables up far better when that, that faint smell of cleaning product <laughs> was in the room. And yet that's, an, I mean, so you can nudge without people being at all aware they're being nudged. And most nudges, yeah. that's actually what's going on. People aren't really consciously aware of the nudge. If it becomes something they become very consciously aware of, then actually it's probably no longer a nudge. It's a kind of an in your face, do it this way type of thing. Mm. So it becomes more like a command than a nudge. And, and there's a gray area in the middle between those fairly obviously. So. Yeah. so that's something I wanted to ask you about, Paul, because we've talked about us using this idea of nudge theory, exposing choices to prompt other people. And you've just said there that if it's something we become aware of, it's no longer a nudge. So can we not use this on ourselves? Um, I, I wouldn't say it's no longer a nudge. You can be aware of a nudge. I'm aware of nudges all the time now. When I go and look at that magazine subscription online or something and it says, here's the recommended choice, I know that's a nudge. Right, sure. And But also when I notice that a nudge, my next reaction tends to be, oh, that's okay. You know, they're, they're doing their stuff the way they need to do it. And my next reaction is, well, who's benefiting from that nudge? If it's a magazine subscription, chances are it's the magazine. Mm -hmm. In other words, I'm going to at that point take a step back and I will go into Spock mode, if you like, and I will then try and make a rational choice <laughs> and ignore the emotion, ignore the positioning, ignore the big flashing button and actually say, you know, I will do it this way because that's the rational, optimal choice. Um, and so that's one way you can react to a nudge. And, and it's not to be about annoyed that you were nudged. I mean, that's what people do. Uh, it's just that you can say, ah, I see there's a nudge happening and I can, now you might, if it's the optimal choice for you, still choose where the nudge points you. But in sure. Spock mode, if you like, rather than <laughs> Homer Simpson mode, you, uh, you know, where you <laughs> just reach out for the next, oh, donut, you know, you just reach for the next best thing. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's the difference between, in effect, when we're nudging, we are uh, assuming that at least some of the people who are looking at it will respond in that heuristic shortcut way to making that choice. And they'll just go with the flow. They'll go with the easiest one. They'll go with the herd mentality. They'll use one of those heuristics to make that choice. And it's better off being a choice that's a win-win for everybody. Sure. So can we design nudges to support our own personal development? Can we design nudges for ourselves? <laughs> That's a really good question. I haven't really even thought about that one. Um, now that might come back to what you mentioned earlier with fog stuff on triggers. So mm -hmm. what we're doing there is perhaps utilizing a trigger to generate a subsequent behavior. Whether that's classically a nudge or not, it's a different story. Um, okay. I suppose it, it, you could think of it that way in the sense that you've got the option to ignore the trigger or not, but that's, that's not really quite how that was set up. 
Um, but uh, can we nudge ourselves? I suppose. Um, but certainly uh, part of it is setting up a context for a choice that we're going to make. I, I mentioned that thing about changing your diet earlier. You know, that's effectively you nudging yourself by sure. spreading the changes you want to make into smaller pieces that are much easier that to, to do as you go forward. So yes, of course, in that sense, you can nudge yourself, yes. So we'd like to finish uh, each podcast with three or four take-home tips that the listeners could reflect on in terms of their own practice. So uh, if you can give us three or four tips, uh, specifically around maybe nudge theory and how to use it in, in their daily practice, uh, what would they be? Um, I, well, I think if we go back to the basics is you are a choice architect when you are offering a choice. So become more aware of when you are offering a choice to people. Um, you cannot not be a choice architect. So if you become aware when you're offering choices, then you can make some decisions on, on how you might um, create that choice itself or the context that surrounds the choice. Um, so, and then you can start noticing nudges that you do on a day-to-day -day basis that perhaps you weren't aware that you were already doing, because uh, you probably weren't, because that's such a, a natural thing that we do as social animals as well, um, because we also have our own agendas and we want things to go a certain way for us. And, and we've always been quite good at nudging people, um, but we've been unaware that we've been doing it often. Um, so, and, and then become aware of when others are nudging you, not to ignore them or not to say that's a bad thing to do, but just become aware of it and how you're responding to it. Because when you respond to somebody else's nudge, you're using one of the biases and you can say, oh, that's a bias that feels quite powerful when it's used on me. How can I then utilize that elsewhere? So that will start you kind of thinking about how you react to nudges which will give you a little bit of a database of how others might react. But of course, everybody's different and not everybody uses the same set of biases or heuristics in the same way. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks for your time this morning. And it's great to chat with you. Brilliant. lots in that conversation that um, I want to go away and reflect on. Before we recorded, I thought it would be more aligned um, with your area of organisational development, Matt. And even though it's very obviously aligned with your area, there's so much that academics can also think about and reflect on from that conversation. One of the things that I really um, appreciated was how um, he drew from the work of Professor BJ Fogg from Stanford University, who talks about habit change and how hooking new actions or habits onto existing actions um, can really make them a lot more effective and long lasting. And I think that that's something that we as academics can reflect on as well as people involved in um, professional services. Another thing that Paul talked about, which I really appreciated was when he was um, talking about how to start to design your nudges to feed into people's biases. So it's important that you work out what those biases are beforehand and then tailor your nudges to suit them. Yeah, you're definitely right there, Alex. Um, these can be used in all sorts of areas. I mean, teaching is a, is a great example, but obviously it comes up in my work as well. 
Um, some of the things that, that Paul was saying, what I took away was around the, the really practical bits around, like, in terms of the nudges, you, you can cut them up into little steps so that you can focus the attention on the small achievable tasks that provide like that incremental development over time. So then those small steps that accumulate over a period of time actually then become you know, a real big change. Um, and the other thing is, and, and we spoke about this at length, is about uh, being a choice architect. So when you offer people choices, you know, you make decisions on the context that surrounds that choice. So people aren't consciously aware of those, of the nudge. So we need to think about this when we design those nudges in, uh, if we want them to be effective. Well, there's lots um, to think about there. And if you'd like to take your thinking further, we've added some um, resources to the website on a specific podcast reading list. You can access that at liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy forward slash podcast. So do have a look at those resources and some of the different um, articles that Paul talked about we've linked to in that list. We also love to hear what you think about each episode. So please do tweet us at Live Uni Academy and you can tweet us directly as well at eLearnerMatt or at Alexandra underscore Owen on Twitter. We'd love to hear what you thought about the conversation. And if you've listened to this episode and are now busy looking at all the nudges out there in the world, um, you know, please do rate and or even better review the show as it really does help get us noticed. And therefore, more people will find us as a result. Also, I know a lot of you have listened and not yet subscribed. So hit that follow button or the subscribe button now to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Bye for now. Bye.